Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. The United States loses about $70 billion a year in tax revenues due to the shifting of corporate taxes to tax havens. Here to talk about this whole underworld of secretly stashed money is Jake Bernstein. He's author and reporter and journalist and uh, the, the, the person who wrote the book Secrecy World Inside the Panama Papers Investigation of Illicit Money Networks and the Global Elite. He joins us here in our 1130 studios. Jake, can you give us a sense of just how big the secret world is and who the players are that have stashed their money in it? Uh, Lisa, I mean, it's only an estimate, but there are trillions of dollars that throw that flow through this underground economy. I mean, just to give you a taste of it, the U.S. Treasury estimates that $300 billion is laundered in the United States every year. That's just in the United States. Um, and to give you a taste of, of, what, uh, of what the Panama Papers sort of reaped for tax authorities worldwide, to date, they've recovered half a billion dollars in taxes that were evaded. Uh, as a result of the Panama Papers leak. What did you learn in doing all of your investigations for the book in terms of the motivation behind all of this? Because there are a lot of ways that you can hide your income. There are many ways in which you can uh, avoid paying taxes. What did you come away with uh, on a thematic basis? Well, it's an interesting question because as one uh, Mosek Fonseca lawyer, uh, this is the Panamanian law firm behind the, the Panama Papers, as one lawyer said candidly in a private email, he said, 95% of our business is to help our clients legally avoid taxes. And so I think that's the major so impetus for people who use this offshore system. But at the same time, it's also being used for criminals, money launderers, drug traffickers, Ponzi schemers, all those kinds of things that we found in the Panama Papers. So how does this work? Ah, well, I mean, there's there's different layers of sophistication, right? I mean, the, the simplest way is, is you get an anonymous shell company uh, in Panama or the British Virgin Islands or a place like that, and they use that to open a, a bank account somewhere, maybe in Singapore, maybe in Cyprus, someplace like that, and then you can do sort of business. But m truly wealthy people are much more sophisticated. They do layering. So you'll have an anonymous shell company. It'll have fake directors. It'll be attached to a trust, which will be attached to a foundation. And so there's different layers that makes it almost impossible to figure out who's actually behind it. Is there any uh, guidance uh, that you've seen from governments or law enforcement officials in order to deal with this in the future? Because I can't imagine that everybody's just shut down their entire system as you've described it. It's probably morphed into something else, perhaps even more sophisticated. You're absolutely right. I mean, this is one of the things that, that I talk about in my book, Secrecy World, and that you can really see through the Panama Papers is this is a living organism almost. I mean, it evolves over time to, to take advantage of, of different things. And, you know, one, one avenue is shut off, it moves to another place. So, for example, if the BVI tightens up, uh, you know, stuff moves to Singapore, it moves to Dubai, and, uh, and it continues on. When we talk about who the people are behind this world, it's from 
rich people all over the world, right? Um, but Russia has played a, a sort of central role in this universe. Can you explain why that is? Sure. I mean, part of it is the fact that there is, you know, the rule of law is tenuous at best in Russia. So people uh, are are eager to to send their money out of the country because they're afraid that someone might take it because the judicial system is rigged, right? So there's major offshoring. There's been a lot of instability, you know, and, and, and prices have fluctuated. And so that's part of the motivation also. People want to park their cash someplace where it's safe, oftentimes in real estate here in the United States or in London, places like that. But at the same time, the oligarchs and, uh, and the power centers around Vladimir Putin himself are very adept at using this. Uh, a, a number of them have backgrounds in the KGB, and they have been working with the offshore system for decades. They know how to use it and how to hide their activities really well. How prevalent is it among uh, the wealthiest individuals in the United States? I mean, I know that there's been some uh, talk of the current cabinet uh, of the U.S. Uh, government that it's the wealthiest cabinet ever in the history of, uh, of the country. Um, are they tied in at all? Well, there was a second leak after the Panama Papers uh, called the Paradise Papers, which centered around a law firm in Bermuda called Appleby. And there were more than 31,000 Americans found in that leak alone. So it's it's quite prevalent and uh, it is being used by uh, wealthy all over the world, including the United States. The Paradise Papers uh, revealed a number of uh, Democratic uh, wealthy donors and Republican wealthy donors, and as you say, a number of Trump cabinet members and donors, including Wilbur Ross, the Secretary of Commerce. Is there uh, an industry uh, that is out there uh, actively pursuing this kind of business? I mean, yes, it's, there's a whole infrastructure behind the secrecy world, and it's bankers, it's lawyers, it's accountants, it's trust managers, um, it's, it's thriving, they have meetings, um, and, uh, and they're doing well. They do not feel any, I mean, the more regulatory uh, rules that are overlaid on top of this just means more business for them. That's where I was going with this. So as a result of increased attention to this very issue, uh, has this is this something that you're going to fight from the uh, regulatory side or is there a way to I don't know whether there's a way to convince individuals who do this kind of stuff to just stop doing it because it's so complicated. What's so interesting is that what the Panama Papers showed was this firm, Mosek Fonseca, that had this crazy business model, right? They, they wanted to be the McDonald's of the offshore system, right? High volume, low cost. And they wanted to make it available to lots of people, particularly the new wealth in the developing world. Well, that's starting to change now. And the bar to entry is getting higher. So really, it's for people who, who, are, who are really rich and you know not just the merely wealthy, but the uber wealthy people who have $50 million or more. And these people do not look at the nation state in the same way that most of us do, right? They have homes in London and New York and in some place sunny, and they have bank accounts in Switzerland and lots of different places. And, uh, and it's very hard to sort of appeal to their conscience and say, oh, you know, you should pay attention to the place where you were born or where you make your money. So it's a challenge, but I mean, it's going to require a, a population that gets awoken to, to what's happening here. One thing that you said when you walked in is it's sort of interesting how central of a role the U.S. plays in this secret world. Can you just uh, quickly give a sense of what you're talking about? Sure. I mean, one of the, the, the 
people have have have, have said, and I th- I think it's probably true that the uh, the U.S. is the largest tax haven in the world. Now this strikes many people as crazy, right? They think of tax havens as a sunny place with palm trees and ocean breezes. But in fact, Delaware, Wyoming, Nevada are pumping out tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of these anonymous shell companies all the time. I mean, the Delaware Public Registry pulls in a billion dollars a year on fees just associated with this business. Uh, It's great for them. And the secretaries of state led by Delaware have made sure that the rules have always been very favorable to them for this, even though the State Department and Treasury Department have complained bitterly that this system, Delaware companies are being used by Russian mafia and transnational gangs. Jake Bernstein, thank you very much. Author, reporter, his book, Secrecy World, Inside the Panama Papers Investigation of Illicit Money Networks and the Global Elite. Follow him on Twitter at Jake underscore Bernstein. Let's uh, turn our attention now to the world of gaming. Uh, Brian Edgar is our senior gaming and lodging analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, and uh, he can be followed on Twitter at Breaking Call. And uh, Brian, uh, I understand that the kind of epicenter of the world of gaming might be shifting just slightly to upstate New York. Yes, the Catskills. The Borscht Belt of all Yeah, to a 2100 slots, 130 table games, $1.2 billion, 330 hotel rooms, a golf course, a water park, and it's just five miles from uh, Monticello Monticello (laughs) Raceway. Exactly. No, it's a big year for domestic gaming outside Vegas with anywhere from five to 15 casinos opening up. You mentioned the one in the Catskills. That's a big deal because Genting is a powerful company with a lot of Asian properties. Uh, That property will be 90 miles from New York City. There's cross-marketing opportunities. So we are seeing this year a very big and consequential build-out of casinos in various states within the Northeast, which is is a very pronounced development. So what's driving this? Because... Typically, we think of Las Vegas, uh, it has the weather, right? I mean, if you've got the snow, it's not exactly as encouraging. Uh, They have the laws that allow it. What's driving the Northeast build-out? I think it's really tapping new markets. Uh, There's high population density. You've got the build-out and development of the Western New England market, where MGM will be, uh, the Catskills market, as you mentioned. Uh, Atlantic City had a monopoly in the Northeast up until the 1990s. That's all changed. Now the Northeast market is a $10 billion five-state market, the same size as Las Vegas. So really, it's about where the people are and the opportunity to bring those casinos closer to population centers. Is it likely that this will encourage even more building, and as a result, we're going to end up with a glut of gaming opportunities? Well, the one state I would point to where there's an unusual amount of expansion is Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, just in October, authorized 10 new uh, mini casinos to be built throughout the state. That's on top of 12 existing racetrack and standalone casinos. So Pennsylvania authorized for tax revenue generation purposes a very large build-out. It will include slots at airports and and up to five video gaming devices or at, at truck stops. So Pennsylvania itself is making a big grab for a big move towards expanding gaming in that state. So yes, there are some states where it's very rapidly developing. So what does this all mean for Atlantic Avenue? I mean, it has obviously gotten pretty run down. Will it rebuild? Will it try to compete? Or will this just sort of further deteriorate the outlook? Well, Atlantic City, uh, despite its many 
problems. It went from 12 casinos to seven after an extensive shakeout. Uh, at least now is starting to grow. Same store growth in, in in Atlantic City was up seven percent last year. Um, Borgata uh, is still the um, dominant property owned by MGM. That's thirty percent of the market. Um, we'll see. I think what we're, we're doing now is this summer you'll see two new casinos in Atlantic City uh, opening up. You've got uh, both um, the Hard Rock Casino and the and the Ocean Ocean Resort will grow the market by almost thirty percent. The real test will be whether or not. You've got enough critical mass of gaming attractions to bring in enough people to offset the potential adverse effect, competitive effect on other properties. So who's going to be the big beneficiary? What companies are the ones that really are going to uh, be able to take advantage of this build out? You know, taking a step back and looking at the Northeast horizon generally, MGM has got a big advantage uh, because it has really a corridor of casinos from National Harbor in Maryland to Brigada in Atlantic City, and as of September, Springfield in Massachusetts. So it really has got a lock on a corridor of powerful properties with a big brand name in the Northeast. There are some losers as well, and I can talk about those. Uh, in Pennsylvania, Penn National is going to face off against some uh, potential new small casinos in that state. And also, uh, Penn has a racetrack casino in Massachusetts, Plain Ridge Park, which is going to get new competition both from MGM in Springfield and from Tiverton in Rhode Island. So uh, just sort of backing out a little bit, I just want to get a sense of how gambling revenues have been. I mean, it's been a pretty good economy. Does that usually mean that people gamble more? Do they gamble less because they actually have uh, jobs that can pay their bills? The good economy helps, uh, but at the same time, we've had a lot more competition. So if I were to characterize U.S. gaming outside of Vegas, it's a slow growth, mature industry, maybe anywhere from, you know, minus 2% to plus 2%, same store growth. It's growing modestly. It's a relatively mature industry. There are pockets of opportunity, but compared to 20, 30 years ago, uh, the domestic gaming scene outside Las Vegas in many parts of the country is fairly well built out. Again, with these pockets of opportunity like Western New England, for example. Online gaming? Any thoughts there? Uh, online gaming is right now on an intrastate basis limited uh, to uh, Nevada and New Jersey. There's talk about placing it elsewhere. Uh, there's uh, there's an online gaming element to what's happening in Pennsylvania, which had a, this big, massive uh, expansion of gaming. So online gaming may continue to develop state by state, intrastate, but for now, on a federal interstate basis, that's a bit more problematic. Brian Egger, thank you so much for joining us. Brian Egger, Senior Gaming and Lodging Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, talking about the gaming industry. There have been many stories about the various methods that Uber used that really uh, went up to the edges of the law. And there's a phenomenal article on the Bloomberg Today. Uber used secret tool for keeping the authorities in the dark that just builds on some of what we have heard in the past. Joining us now is one of the authors of that article, Olivia Zaleski. She's a technology reporter for Bloomberg. Olivia, what is this secret tool and how is Uber using it? Well, let me give you some context first. Um, in 2015, Uber really started to get a lot of attention from the authorities. Uh, these authorities, especially in the EU, uh, believed that the company was violating tax laws and labor laws and was really um, 
sort of playing too hard and too fast in their jurisdictions. Uh, so these uh, authorities began raiding Uber's offices looking for evidence. Uber didn't like this and um, created a tool that it called Ripley um, to essentially shut down its offices whenever there was a police raid and shut down all the computers so that police uh, could not collect evidence. Now, this is a tool that uh, I guess Ripley is, uh, you mentioned a riff on the character that Sigourney From Weaver alien. plays. Yeah, an alien. <laughs> In true Uber form, they, you know, they would come up with these creative names for their various uh, software programs. We had Grayball and, and Hell uh, or Godview. And uh, just in, in Uber fashion, this one was called Ripley after the main character in Alien. Um, because she had a line in the movie where she says, uh, let's nuke the site from orbit. It's the only way to be sure, meaning it's the only way to be sure that the aliens won't come back and get us. Okay, so run with that and maybe use the example of what authorities in Montreal were looking for and how Ripley works. It's a remote control system. Yeah, let me walk you through it. So uh, essentially in 2015, um, Authorities from the um, Canadian Tax Bureau showed up at Uber's headquarters in Montreal um, seeking uh, tax documents and uh, essentially a manager in that office paged a system, this Ripley system, and within a few minutes um, the headquarters in San Francisco shut down all the computers and some phones uh, in Montreal. and made these um, Canadian authorities very frustrated because they went to open, you know, they went to uh, talk to employees and ask them for records, and those employees couldn't even open their computers because they had been locked out. Is this legal? So that's a very good question. Uh, we have had trouble getting an answer on that because there's a, a real patchwork of um, different laws abroad, and uh, some people have said it's it's an obstruction of justice. Some people have said it is legal, uh, as long as it's done in the right way, and you have to have, uh, you know, there are all sorts of various complicated conversations, but, you know, that'll be for somebody else to determine. Um, what we do understand is that employees at Uber felt very uncomfortable with it, and um, that there were a lot of discussions about, uh, you know, how to keep this quiet, how to keep it secret. So they were obviously concerned about something. Olivia, physically, how did they engage this tool? In other words, how did they find out that there was going to be some kind of investigation and automatically shut down all of the computers? Well, I think, you know, I don't want to go into whether or not they knew the police were coming or the authorities were coming because that can be seen as a violation of Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And we just don't know if they did that. Um, we do understand that they were expecting raids in in their offices all over the world because they knew they were a target uh, because they were disruptive. Um, so they designed the system to work in any office abroad. Um, and essentially the employee in the office, the manager or somebody who had been trained to use it would page a number on their phone. Um, it would route through this program Twilio and then it would go to headquarters um, where they it would initiate a program to just log everybody off the computers or um, eventually they developed a program where they could keep the computers on, but they could hide information um, that perhaps the authorities were collecting. Olivia, what have you heard from either Joe Sullivan or Sally Yu? These were both the heads of the uh, departments, the security and legal departments, respectively, at Uber when this was taking place. 
Yeah, we haven't heard back from them. Um, both of them did not respond to our request for comment. Um, Uber's um, communications department has been very active in um, managing this story with us. We've been on the phone with them many times the past week and um, really trying to understand the program. And uh, they feel uh, very much that, that this was in their rights and that they, um, you know, Essentially, they, they feel that they were doing what was in the best interest of their customers, which was to protect data, and that these authorities in other countries were on fishing expeditions. They feel that they were the warrants that, the, that they were collecting information for were too broad, yeah. and so that they had the right to um, request, you know, to lock everything down and say, come back to us with something that's more specific. Olivia, real quick, do you know of any other company out there that has done something similar to this? So it's interesting. That was another point that Uber brought up. They said everybody does this. You know that this is common. That everybody has a, a lockdown button, and you know you should even look at Bloomberg. They may have this. What we found is lots of companies have a, a way to shut down computers for an unexpected visitor. You know maybe there's um, a competitor breaks in, or there's a situation where um, you know there's even a terrorist attack and they need to keep their information all locked up. But we have not found a situation where it was used so frequently, um, you know, dozens of times and where it um, was pervasive in offices around the world. We got to leave it there. Olivia Zaleski, technology reporter for Bloomberg. Thanks very much. Trade talks, they are heating up again this year. And yesterday there was news that Canada believes that there is a much greater likelihood that the U.S. will exit the NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, uh, in the upcoming months. Here to talk about that is Caitlin Weber, government analyst covering U.S. trade policy for Bloomberg Intelligence. And she comes to us from our Bloomberg 99.1 studio in Washington, D.C. Caitlin Can you just lay out what we found out yesterday and if there really is a much greater likelihood at this point that the U.S. will withdraw from NAFTA? Yeah, so yesterday news broke that Canada, um, you know, really actually came out and and sort of is reflecting a lot of the pessimism we're, we're hearing from a lot of the companies and uh, industries that rely on, on NAFTA. There's been a lot of sort of doom and gloom around the NAFTA talks so far. Um, we're on the sixth round, and there's been no chapters closed so far, and typically you see that after a couple of rounds. Um, so I think Canada coming out yesterday and saying um, – you know, even though they sort of walked that back a bit later, that there's increasing likelihood the Trump administration may attempt to withdraw from the deal. Um, I, you know, I think that is a, a growing sort of recognition of, of in, uh, increasing reality. Uh, Caitlin, I, I keep thinking that we're going to end up sending you to Detroit uh, to cover this story because NAFTA and the automobile industry, they are linked. And I'm wondering if you could tell us what are some of the issues, the contentious demands that the U.S. has when it comes to automotive content? Yeah, so the Trump administration has really said that the auto the auto industry is why they came to the table. Really, that's their number one issue that they want to see a lot of change on. And that really centers around content rules. So currently, to in order to qualify for duty-free status under the deal, um, a vehicle has to be a little over half um, NAFTA um, content in order to qualify for getting tariffs uh, reduced. Now, the Trump administration wants to significantly increase that to 85%, including 50% solely U.S. value. 
Canada and Mexico, for their part, say that proposal is a non-starter and to this point haven't even tabled um, sort of counter uh, counters to that yet. So, yeah, the, the content rule is really um, the biggest issue there. The Trump administration want, thinks that by making that more stringent, they'll be able to cut down on what they see as cheaper parts coming in from Asia, from other places, as um, getting into cars and qualifying for NAFTA benefits that really shouldn't. Caitlin, the response from the stock market was pretty decisive. GM shares, for example, declining nearly 2.4% on the news and escalating declines uh, with Canada's sort of reflection of the pessimism that you're hearing from a lot of companies. I'm just wondering, do you think that there will be any recognition from people in the, the, the Trump administration or whoever's negotiating the NAFTA arrangement that this could potentially be detrimental to the companies should the NAFTA agreement, should the U.S. pull out? Yeah, absolutely. I think that they're very conscious of that. I think that that, you know, that in particular will be the number one thing that if the Trump administration does, um, you know, agree to continue negotiating even after this sixth round, it's because of of a stepped up lobbying effort from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, from companies. Uh, Donald Trump is obviously, um, you know, very interested in, in the stock market and, um, you know, taking credit for um, for gains there. And so, Anything, you know, tying um, potential um, losses there to to NAFTA uncertainty, I think, would be very, uh, very powerful and influential indeed. Well, Caitlin, we know that the manufacturer of light vehicles uh, in Canada and in Mexico is linked to their uh, their sale in, in the United States, but also it's a it's a global market. Um, is there any understanding that if indeed they force the automakers to produce cars in the United States, that that's going to hurt those companies in their global ambitions as well. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, if the U.S. does exit from NAFTA, not only would U.S. tariffs go up, but but tariffs in Canada and Mexico would, would as well. And the tariffs there are much higher. And those are very important markets for U.S. automakers. Um, you know, and there's also increasingly talk about U.S. automakers when they're coming up with their contingency plans for what to do if NAFTA goes away, thinking about um, manufacturing more in Asia. So, you know, it's it's very uncertain whether or not the, the Trump administration may, you know, achieve their goal of increasing U.S. manufacturing if they do sort of uh, tinker with this deal so much that um, it shifts these supply chains that have really become integrated across the North American economy. Caitlin, can you give us a sense of which industries would be most affected? So we've talked a lot about automakers. Right. You know, they're probably number one. Um, number two would be the U.S. energy sector. While there there isn't a concern there as much about tariffs being reimposed because tariffs are are normally um, you know much lower on energy products, the concern there is that Mexico in particular has become a very important market for U.S. natural gas and oil exporters, and so. If the U.S. Uh, exited from NAFTA, we would very likely see a contraction in the Mexico economy. So we see less demand there for electricity, for oil. Um, there's also a number of um, pretty thorny kind of red tape that would that NAFTA does away with now in terms of, of gas exports and other things that, um, you know, if the deal went away, that it would just make it much, much more difficult for that industry to to do, um, you know, to do business, to do their to do their exports. Um, and then I think the third, I would mention retailers, you know, obviously, um, 
rely heavily on the duty-free benefits under NAFTA, which are, are fully um, in place this time. And so, um, you know, retailers and also transportation companies, um, rail companies, um, you know, trucking companies that do a lot of business bringing those consumer products back and forth. I want to thank you very much for being with us. Caitlin Weber is a government analyst for U.S. Trade Policy for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, speaking about the North American uh, Free Trade Agreement. Uh, Canada then uh, preparing new talks related to NAFTA's provisions, uh, focusing, as uh, Caitlin said, on perhaps the automobile sector. Uh, in fact, the Canadian Foreign Minister, Christia Freeland was speaking to reporters outside a cabinet meeting uh, today saying that the country, Canada, would bring new ideas for unconventional U.S. proposals, but she didn't actually give any details. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.